Our scripture reading this evening is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. The epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Our text this evening is found in the last three verses of the chapter, 20 through 22. We hear the word of God in Ephesians, chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And here follow the words of our text. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together, for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Thus far we read from God's holy word. As I said, our text is found in these last three verses, 20 through 22. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, do you love the church? Love for the church is a mark of the Christian, even as we saw this morning. Devotion to the church of Jesus Christ is the duty as well as the privilege given to us as God's children. And the reason for this is to be found in what the church is. She is the bride of Christ. She is the dwelling place of God, the mother of believers, the body of Christ. 
You, Dune Protestant Reformed Church, are a manifestation of that body. And therefore, the believer in Christ loves the church even as he loves Christ. We give expression to that love as we gather on the Lord's Day, sing from so many of the Psalms. Psalm 84, how lovely, Lord of hosts, to me the tabernacles of thy grace. Oh, how I long, yea, faint to see thy hallowed courts, thy dwelling place. Or we may think of Psalm 137, and the mournful cry of the captives in Babylon who sat down and wept when they remembered Zion. Jerusalem was a pile of rubble. Her honor lay in the dust. Her people were scattered and the public worship of Jehovah on Mount Zion had been abolished. And their captors jeeringly required of them a song of mirth and joy. And yet their harps could not comply. No mirth, no joy was possible while they were separated from Zion, the church. And in Babylon they make a vow. O Zion fair, God's holy hill, wherein our God delights to dwell, let my right hand forget her skill, if I forget to love thee well. Let my tongue from utterance cease, if any earthly joy to me be dear as Zion's joy and peace. Already centuries before our text was written, the inspired psalmist of Israel saying, Zion founded on the mountains, God thy maker loves thee well. He has chosen thee most precious. He delights in thee to dwell. God's own city, who can all thy glory tell? And such is virtually the theme of the entire epistle to the Ephesians. The glory of the church as the body of Christ. The apostle already describes that glory of the church in Christ when he begins with his apostolic benediction and then adds, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And that keynote, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, runs through this entire epistle, always showing forth the glory of God as it's reflected in the church through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore we have that well-known contrast, the beginning of this second chapter of the epistle. And you, but God. The apostle describes our natural depravity as we are conceived and born in sin, reminding us that we were dead in trespasses and sins, a part of this present evil world under the power of Satan, fulfilling the desires and the lusts of the flesh by nature, children of wrath, even as all the rest. And then you have an amazing contrast. But God was rich in mercy, motivated by his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive and raised us with Christ and even exalted us with him in heavenly glory. In Christ, all our salvation is complete and eternally secure. Then the apostle reminds us of that distinction of old between Jew and Gentile, for even while God was gathering in his elect from the Jews, we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Notice, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 12, think of it. What misery. Can you imagine anything worse? No hope 
without God in the world. But God now gathers his elect also from the Gentiles, so that we who were afar off are brought near, and that middle wall of separation is broken away, so that we are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens belonging to the same household of God, for Jew and Gentile alike, for all God's elect, there is that divine assurance, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And the Apostle Paul beholds the church, God's elect, holy, Catholic church, and he sees that church as it's being gathered in this present time, and as we are living members of it, as we as a congregation here are a manifestation of it, and as we, as Christians, as we saw this morning, are even used by God, his servants, stewards in his house, the ingathering and building, the completion of God's church, his house, even in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in this light that we consider our text under the theme, Building the House of God. And we notice, first of all, the house, secondly, the foundation, and finally, the construction. Clearly, the apostle is using a figure here in our text, and yet at the same time, he applies that figure to its reality. He uses the figure of a foundation and he explains that this foundation is the apostles and the prophets. He refers to the cornerstone and immediately adds that this is Christ Jesus. He speaks of the house built upon the foundation, fitly framed together, and points out to us that this house is the dwelling place of God, where God dwells through the Spirit. And then he concludes that we also are set into that building as separate stones, each in our particular place, and yet together making that perfect unity of the church, the house of God. Undoubtedly, Paul had in mind the temple of the old dispensation, that temple, as you know, is the center of Israel's typical worship. Canaan was the promised land flowing with milk and honey, but the center of Canaan was Jerusalem, the holy city, and the heart of the holy city was the temple where Jehovah, God, dwelt behind the veil in that most holy place. There in the temple stood the altar of burnt offering as a constant reminder that Israel was a sinful people. And yet at the same time, that altar symbolized the blood of atonement that took away the sins of the people. Christ was represented there in the priest as well as in the sacrifices. And through Christ, the people had access to God. There God's people experienced blessed covenant fellowship with the only true and living God, the thrice holy one. And there they experienced the bond of faith that united them in the Lord, even as they looked forward in hope for the better things to come. For they, the church, were after all the house, the dwelling place of God, God was in the midst of them, and therefore they stood steadfast, unmoved. And with that figure in mind, the apostle speaks of a building that's under construction. It's gradually taking shape and form as every stone is put in its own place, each one fitting in with all the other stones and with all the rest of the building, ultimately to reveal its complete and perfect unity in Christ. 
forgetting for a moment the figure, bearing in mind that these are not dead but living stones, the apostle is inspired to say that this building grows, grows like a plant, as it were, grows to its full capacity, or to go back to the figure again, grows into an immense and beautiful temple of God. There are certain details about this building that we should notice. Of course, first of all, a building calls for a plan. Even when we desire to build a church facility or a house, we carefully prepare plans. We hire an architect to draw up the prints of our proposed structure so that every detail of that house may be worked out beforehand even to the most minute part. We plan the size and the shape of the building, the number of doors and windows, the location of each, and determine all the rooms that that house should contain and their size and all the various materials that are to be used in the construction, even down to the electrical outlets and the heating and cooling units, every detail. Really, all of that is done before any work is started or even the foundation is laid. Now, this is, of course, but a vague earthly picture of God's sovereign and eternal decree of predestination of his church. Eternally, God has set before him his glorious house as it will be realized in all its perfection in the new creation. We cannot say, of course, that God made those plans for his house or that he gradually formulated those plans in his mind as if there were a span in eternity when God was without that perfect house that he builds. God does not change, nor does God grow richer in carrying out his eternal thoughts according to the purpose of his will. The sovereign architect eternally has before him his Christ, the great servant in his house, and in Christ he has before him, even in his heart and mind, his church chosen in Christ unto everlasting life. God has chosen Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the eternal cause and the ultimate purpose of all God's marvelous works. Who but the Son, the perfect likeness and reflection of the Father's glory, could hold such a unique place in the mind of God. And God gave to Christ a people chosen in Christ to show forth the praises of God's name, that people consists of a definite number of specific elect, no more, no less, each one chosen to have his or her own place in the church of God. Christ is the head. We are the members of his body. And as the head cannot exist without the body, so also the body cannot exist without the head. Christ is the chief cornerstone, and we are the stones of God's temple. Each one fits in his own place according to eternal divine wisdom. No one else could possibly fit in that place Without each place being filled, the temple would not be complete. And its unity, its harmony, its beauty would be ruined. And God would not attain his glory. But don't forget that this also applies to the scaffolding of the building. Yes, God sovereignly chooses his people unto everlasting life, but he also determines the reprobate to perish in their sins. 
even the reprobate must serve their purpose toward the construction of God's temple, even as the chaff serves the wheat. In spite of themselves, they are the scaffolding used by God during this present time to erect his church. Of course, at present, we can have difficulty sometimes even distinguishing between the building and the scaffolding. We cannot see the heart, but God knows his own. And ultimately, the scaffolding is pulled away and burned, and the building stands forth in all its splendor and beauty to the praise of the master builder, God Almighty. In close connection, we should notice that the church of God answers perfectly to the plans and purposes of the architect in unity, harmony, perfection, beauty. Here, though, beloved, we must remember especially that we must not regard the things that we see with our natural eyes, but must look with the eye of faith upon the things we do not see in faith based upon the scriptures we confess as we have again this evening and holy catholic church and that bears renewed emphasis in our times the very idea of a holy catholic church as taught in the scriptures and our confessions Specifically here in our text, the very idea is ridiculed, scorned, despised. Shameful things are spoken of this church in her true spiritual essence. Many are inclined to seek an outward, superficial unity of the church consisting of all sorts of denominations and a great variety of beliefs coming together so that numerically the church may be strong and pretentious in the midst of the world. The antithetical position of the church over against the world of sin and unbelief is denied. Compromise with the world is frequently sought. Much of what calls itself church, busies herself with a social agenda and with political affairs rather than with her spiritual distinction and purity. By doing that, the so-called church ultimately becomes the great harlot, riding on the red beast, directing and cooperating with the Antichrist. The faithful church more and more becomes the object of the mockery and hatred of the world, is numerically small and weak, becomes more and more antithetically opposed to the world of darkness, even as light opposes the darkness. The true spiritual distinction becomes ever more evident. The individual members of the church become ever more strangers and aliens upon the earth, seeking with increasing longing that heavenly inheritance and perfection. And more and more, the place of the church is small in the earth. The world has tolerance for everyone and everything except faithful church yet the church is holy even as a temple is holy the individual believer is redeemed justified sanctified in Christ and therefore scripture does not hesitate to say that those who are born of God are without sin from that viewpoint of their new life in Christ. Still more, they are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, heirs of the life to come. They are the family of God, his sons and daughters adopted through the shed blood of his dear son. They are Christ's holy bride, 
Together they are the stones of his temple, and therefore they are also addressed as saints in Christ Jesus. It's our comfort, is it not? Even as from day to day we are yet deeply conscious of our own sin and sinfulness and guilt, even while we may be scorned in the midst of this world. And further, this church is one. The generations of the elect may extend from paradise to the end of history. God's people may be gathered from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Outwardly, there may often seem to be far more division than there is unity among them as they are torn apart by sin and the evil threats and plots of Satan. Yet they are one in Christ with one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Lord united unto one God to whom they bring glory forever. Therefore, there's also a communion of saints. There is that common bond of faith that unites us as true people of God. We are drawn to one another, drawn together. We seek each other's welfare through that common bond of faith so that we can sincerely say, This is my father, this is my mother, this is my brother, this is my sister who does the will of my heavenly Father. And in the love of Christ, we bear each other's burdens. In addition, we should note yet that the building referred to in our text is a temple. Now, a temple can be very impressive perhaps because of its size or because of its unique architecture or its particular majesty or beauty. And all this is certainly true of the temple of our God as will become evident in the new creation when that multitude that no man can number is united as saints in Christ before God's throne. But The real importance of a temple is the fact that it is the house of God. God dwells there. God is the light that radiates throughout the temple. God's glory shines through every part of the building. Therefore, our text speaks of a habitation of God. It stresses that the church is God's home. And God's home means, in a word, fellowship, blessed fellowship. There we experience the covenant fellowship of God and his people. There is the intimate communion of life that is reflected here on earth in the relationships of family, husband and wife, parents and children. God is in the midst of her. No wonder that the psalmist almost shouted in ecstasy, glorious things are spoken of thee, city blessed of God the Lord. Yes, glorious things indeed, for we, beloved, are God's house, God's dwelling place, chosen, prepared to show forth the praises of his name. And although the main thought of the text centers around this house, strong emphasis is also laid upon the foundation, and along with the foundation on the cornerstone without which the house of God could never exist nor rise to its ultimate perfection and glory. Our attention is focused especially on that cornerstone. 
And this figure appears more often in the New Testament scriptures along with the figure of the temple. And it is taken, no doubt, from Psalm 118. And there we read of the stone which the builders refused and how it has become the head of the corner. It stands out as something very marvelous in our eyes just because it is so obviously the work of Jehovah God and his alone as a wonder of grace. It's not so difficult to visualize the picture here. In the old dispensation, as you recall, David was King David was not permitted to build the temple, but his son Solomon would. But all the materials were collected together for the building of Solomon's temple. And among all that inventory of building materials was one large, seemingly cumbersome stone. And it simply does not fit with the plans of the builders. It always seems to interfere with all of their reckonings. This stone never fits until the builders learn that it is the chief cornerstone, chosen of God and precious. And that, of course, was prophecy. And its real fulfillment came when Annas and Caiaphas, along with Judas Iscariot and Herod and Pilate, even the Sanhedrin and all the people joined together to condemn Jesus to that accursed death of the cross. They found no place in their idea of the church for Jesus, the Christ of the scriptures, no more than the modernists do in our times. But even though they gave the Christ over unto death and the curse, God justified him, raised him from the dead, exalted him with a name above all names, even as head of the church. In the highest heavens, he is the cornerstone. Now a cornerstone in ancient times was a very important, vital part of the foundation and therefore of the entire structure. Today, a cornerstone is mainly symbolic, more ornamental, really. But according to the figure used in the scriptures, it is the stone upon which that entire building rests. And all the other foundation stones lean toward that one massive cornerstone so that this one stone gives stability and unity and even beauty to the entire building. Christ, Scripture tells us, is that cornerstone. He is chosen of God as the elect the firstborn among many brethren. God chose us in Christ and beholds us in Christ and blesses us in him and joins us to him in perfect unity with him eternally. Christ is the rock upon which we are founded and that's true in the absolute sense of the word. He is the bread of life He is the living water. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is made unto us of God wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. And in one word, complete redemption. Our life is hid with Christ in God eternally. As we said before, we can speak of and holy church because we are holy in Christ. We can speak of a Catholic church because our unity is in Christ. He is the fullness of all our life and salvation. And now besides the cornerstone, there is also mentioned the foundation. 
And this foundation is referred to as the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now there's some difference of opinion as to whether the term prophets here refers to the prophets of the Old Testament times or to those who were yet in the early church. Arguments can be raised to defend either position, but without going into detail, I prefer to think here of the prophets of the old dispensation. It's true, as some point out, that the apostles are mentioned first and then the prophets, while in order of time the prophets of the Old Testament were first. But certainly writing to the church of the new dispensation, Paul could very well refer to the apostles first because they proclaimed the fulfillment of the promises spoken by the prophets of old. And surely the prophets of the old dispensation are as much the foundation of the church as are the apostles of the new. But the vital question arises, what is meant by these apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church? Surely this cannot refer to them as individual persons, but rather it does refer to them in their office, that is, in their capacity as prophets and apostles. As such, They were the bearers of the word of God. God filled them with his spirit so that Christ, the great office bearer, spoke through them. And that which they spoke is infallibly recorded and preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. These scriptures, therefore, are the foundation of the church. It's all the more evident from the fact that the scriptures, from the very first page to the very last page, reveal to us the Christ. The scriptures are, as it were, a marvelous, glorious portrait of Christ, who is the rock, the cornerstone, upon which the church rests and from which it has all its existence. And we cannot emphasize too strongly, especially today, that the infallibly inspired word of God, as we have it in the scriptures, is the foundation of the church. Many, many, many who call themselves Christians deny the infallibility and the inspiration of the scriptures. Many deny the truth as it is set forth in the Bible. They want no objective truth because they want no objective word. And then God becomes whatever we desire him to be in our own minds. And Christ likewise becomes really a figure of our imagination. And faith is no more than personal feeling or experience. And then we've really lost all, absolutely all that is of any value in our lives. From this results the sad tragedy that the power of the word is denied. And the church institute means nothing anymore. As we noted this morning, church membership and church attendance steadily declines. Then the preaching of the word is neglected or even replaced. A dialogue or a group discussion or a movie or a play or a liturgical dance is considered far more effective than the preaching of the word. And then the offices in the church mean nothing. And Christ's word of power means nothing. So that all that remains is a form of godliness lacking the very power of the spirit of Christ. 
Beloved, we must maintain that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The infallibly inspired word of God is the only sure foundation and the preaching of the word, no matter how it is ridiculed, must be maintained as the divinely given means of grace along with the proper administration of the sacraments. Christ refuses to work through other means. We must always go back to the law and the prophets or there will be no dawn for us. The word of God is the only foundation upon which God builds his church. And finally, we must consider, too, the construction of this temple. Our text speaks of that also as a process that's being carried out throughout history to the very end of time as we know it now. Notice then, first of all, the builder. And that builder is not man. How often People would like to take matters into their own hands. They would like to seek their own means to gather the church. They would like to take credit for supposedly winning souls for Jesus. Be not deceived. God is the only builder. And that's the plain teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism. For in Lord's Day 21, question 54, we are asked, What believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ? And the answer is given, that the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his Spirit and Word, out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. And such is in harmony with the scriptures which stress throughout that the Lord builds his church. For example, a book such as the book of Ezra, where you have the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after the captivity in Babylon by the remnant that returned. How beautifully it is repeatedly emphasized that that building was the Lord's work. Repeatedly it is stated, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And then we hasten to add, of course, that God builds his church through our Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted Son of God. It's always Christ, who is now at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ, the good shepherd who knows his sheep and calls them by name, and they come to him. He speaks of other sheep that he has, apart from the elect Jews, which he must also gather in, so that there will be eternally one flock and one fold. Jesus is the chief shepherd of his sheep. He gathers them by his word and spirit, always by the preaching, the faithful preaching of the word through the operation of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the elect. There can be no preaching except Christ calls. And those whom Christ calls are official ambassadors of God through whom the Spirit works. Here too, we must maintain an official preaching of the word, an official administration of the sacraments. The work of the elders and the deacons as well who bring the word of Christ in their respective duties, speaking and acting in Christ's name. There is none other means of grace. Christ refuses to work in any other way. And again, it behooves us to pray that God will continue to raise up 
men in our midst for the ministry of the gospel. Then our text becomes very personal. It speaks, first of all, of the fact that each of us is builded together for a home of God in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the Word, calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light, works faith in our regenerated hearts, justifies us, sanctifies us, preserves us in a living hope even unto the day of our perfect salvation. There's always the living power of Christ that works in the hearts of his people. We live yet no more we, but Christ lives in us. And each one of us grows, as it were, into our own place in the body. And each of us ought to respect and appreciate each other in the particular place God has given. Must honor and appreciate our diversity, each unique, each with unique gifts and abilities, strengths, also weaknesses. That doesn't mean that we overlook sin or error, but it means that we deal with it in the right way according to the scriptures and the church order. It means that we are ready to forgive one another. It means that we bear with each other's weaknesses. For each of us is united with all the other members of the body in intimate fellowship and love. And each of us is being chipped, ground, polished in our own place, in God's temple, the place that only we can occupy. And so it is that when we are ready for that place, and that place is ready for us, heaven cannot wait. We are transferred out of the church militant and into our own place in the church triumphant before the throne. And finally, we as willing instruments by his grace are called to work, the work of the Lord toward the construction of his house. As we noticed this morning, we're the friend servants of our God as partakers of the anointing of Christ, stewards in his house. We, men, women, young people, even children, must be willing instruments in the hand of God prayerfully in our own place, seeking to carry out his will. And the work we do in the church may seem so insignificant, so insignificant, in fact, that it appears that it has no real lasting value in the completion of that great temple of our God. But as the psalmist spoke, just to be a doorkeeper in the house of his God. However small and insignificant we may seem in the eyes of men, God is pleased to carry out his work even through such weak, feeble vessels as we are. And let us therefore day by day labor prayerfully that Together we may serve to the praise of the glory of the grace of him who has called us. And so, beloved, I ask you again, do you love the church? The great reformer John Calvin once remarked in his institutes that no one can claim to have 
God for his father unless he has the church as his mother. Make no mistake, the church is where Christ is. And Christ is where the word is faithfully preached and maintained in its purity. Don't doubt the power and the sufficiency of the preaching of that word. Today, people fear that the word can't gather the church. And they fear that the preaching of that word cannot keep the youth. And they fear that that word cannot comfort and strengthen God's people in all of their needs. And they fear that that word cannot stand the test of so-called science. And they fear that scholars will disapprove of that word and mock them. Be not deceived. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. Christ and him crucified and risen again is still the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the preaching of Christ and him crucified is still the way of demonstration of the spirit and of power. Seek and ever abide in the faithful church, beloved, and love that church. Love this church. Love for the church is as a seed that is sown and it sprouts and it brings forth fruit. But understand that when we would sow in disgust and contempt for God's church, another kind of fruit is produced, a bitter fruit. But when the love for the church permeates our homes and our congregation and our churches and sister churches and God's church throughout the world, when that love dominates in our lives, then by God's grace, we will see joyful sons and daughters singing with us, Blessed Zion, all our fountains are in thee. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice in thee. We rejoice and give thanks for thy church, thy temple, thy house. And we marvel at thy wondrous ways that are so amazing. The wonder of thy salvation of thy church, even through thine only begotten Son, thy gathering and preservation of her, even through all the ages of history. And we pray, Father, for the coming of thy kingdom. Hasten the day. Pardon our many sins. Be with us, even in the week which lies before us. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.